Good evening, all. Glad you could join us here on this Facebook feed. If you can, just say a little hi, comment, wave, whatever. Otherwise, I have no idea that you were even there. But I appreciate anything that you can you can leave behind. Let's open it as we pray. Father, we thank you for a good night to spend together. And even though we're in different places, I thank you that your word is the same in each place that we're at. And as we look to it, thank you for the wisdom and guidance you give us in our lives through it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. We are in Exodus chapter 29. We'll be covering the whole chapter as we take a look at Egypt. It seemed from the days of Abraham to the days, last days of Judah, there was always a draw to go back to Egypt. Abraham wanted to go down there when there was no food. Israel kept wanting to go back to Egypt when they were in the wilderness. Once they were in their land, they didn't say, let's go back to Egypt, but they kept depending on Egypt for help. Uh, military help, whatever it might be, they kept looking to Egypt for it. So we're going to take a look at this and learn, are there some Egypts that are in our life that we keep going back to, and how can we get ourselves to not go there anymore? Now last week, we finished up the king of Tyre, and we had this question at the end, how can the unrighteous attitudes of those over us stay off of us? So just as a quick review, we saw some successful examples, some people who did this successfully. David under Saul, he didn't take any of those attitudes that Saul had. Elijah under Ahab, uh, also followed by Elisha. And, of course, Daniel and the, his three Hebrew buddies, they didn't take on the bad attitudes of the Babylonian Empire. Some failed ones, though. The most striking one is Doeg from Saul and how he just set out to kill priests, even though some of Saul's own guards wouldn't go out there and kill them. But he took on that attitude. Those under the Antichrist, religious leaders in Jesus' day, so we gave you some things to how to be successful to keep these things off, just to read them quickly for you here. Compare everything to God's Word and His will. If you have those that are over you, government, whatever it might be, compare everything that they give to you to the Word of God. Don't accept unproven truths. Because many times, these uh, places we've seen this in history, they accepted things that were not true. Certainly it was true with Doeg. Certainly it is true under Antichrist, and even in some of the more modern examples we have, we can see that. Uh, don't do what is not in faith. Make sure that whatever you do, you have a word for it, you have a basis for it. And just as Daniel said, we can't eat that food and be in faith, and they didn't do it. We can do the same. Be increasing in godly wisdom and understanding. Never stay dormant. Believe what God reveals over what you see and hear. That's a tough one, because a lot of times... Uh, people over us at our job, uh, governments, whatever it might be, they show us things and they tell us things and they're designed to get at our emotions and they tend to try and pull us in. But believe what God says. Hang on to that. That's what we certainly what we need to do. All right, let's get over here to Ezekiel chapter 29. In the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Now, there are seven prophecies against Egypt. Six of them are identified by a date. This tells us that there is, uh, there is something going on around that time that we need to be understanding of. Now, this is, these were not all delivered at the same time. That's the, the difference they show us that. They're compiled here in the same chapter. So it seemed that afterwards an editor came by or Ezekiel edited himself after he was finished these and he compiled all these together. As we read these, some of them may seem repetitive, but do remember that there are years in between these and you have to remind people what was said before. So the dates show us that they have something to do with some of the political things that have been going on, some of the events that were happening during that day. And... We have to make sure we keep them in connection as we study this. So first off, we're going to get an understanding of the relations that exist between that period between Judah, Egypt, and Babylon. So after the great defeat of Pharaoh Necho by Nebuchadnezzar at Carchemish, 
on which Jeremiah chapter 46, if you want to go write that down and look at that later, he gives you a lot more detail. He was succeeded in B.C. 594 by his son, Sametic II. He is the Samis of the historian Herodotus. Herodotus. He's the one who invaded Ethiopia and died in B.C. 88, leaving the throne to his son. His name was Ua Prahet. He is Pharaoh Hophra of Jeremiah 44, in verse 30. Uh, the historian Herod calls him a prize. So the Greek historian tells us that he attacked Tyre and Zidon, failed in an enterprise against Cyrene, and was deposed by Amasis. Zedekiah and his counselors were following in the steps of Hezekiah, and I'll give this reference to you if you want to go look at it, Isaiah 31 through 33, and Jehoiakim, Jeremiah 46, 1 through 28. They had courted an alliance against the Chaldeans. And as Ezekiel had prophesied in chapter 17, they found that they were once more leaning on a broken reed. So now we've come to 589 B.C. when Jerusalem was actually besieged but was still dreaming of being relieved by an Egyptian army. Now Egypt was close and too close and too powerful of a neighbor to be ignored. From Egypt's standpoint, Israel was a vital, uh, just their, their placement, their geographical placement, it was, it was vital. All of Egypt's threats were from the north. Now, Israel was not one of their threats. Judah, Israel, neither of them were a threat to them. But Syria, Mesopotamia, the uh, uh, empires of Assyria, Babylon, they all were to the north. And so for them, Israel and Judah were kind of a buffer zone. This, this was a, a place where they, they could stand in between them and the aggressors. So every time that Egypt was friendly to Israel, it was always out of self-interest and towards the goal of protecting themselves. So because of this strategic importance, you know, get this, Egypt felt they had a say in deciding if Israel was allowed to retain her independence or if it was better for Egypt if they took some of that independence away so that they could use that area as a better buffer. Now what Ezekiel points out in this prophecy is that the final say of Israel's destiny was not Egypt's. It was God's. And God was Israel's God. Not, uh, not Egypt's. So going further, he said that even the destiny of the great power, such as Egypt, was in the hands of God, God of Israel. So not only was Israel in God's hands, so was Egypt. And that's what this prophecy is, is going to get to. So this prophecy against Egypt's sins was given January the 7th, 588, 587, somewhere around there, B.C., a few months before the siege and eventual destruction of Jerusalem. Historians differ on this a little bit, usually no more than a year, so 588 might be 587, something uh, along those lines. The, the message was directed at, at Hophra, which is uh, uh, Pharaoh Hophra. His grandfather, Pharaoh Necho, is the one who killed Josiah at Megiddo in 609 B.C. Now, the, uh, let's get on here to some of the things that he says here in verse 3. He says, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own, I have made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers shall stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers, and you shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beast of the field and to birds of the heavens. Well, first off, he calls him here the monster. The monster is translated crocodile, jackal, uh, serpent, dragon, and of course monster and refers to a feared creature. The monster in the area of Egypt would be in the Nile, and that's why most assumptions are that it's the crocodile. He is described as arrogant. 
He said, my river is my, my own, and I have made it for myself. So he's taken possession of a river, and now he sees himself as the creator of that river. Now, Egypt was more a product of the Nile as it made the, the valley habitable and provided the rich soil for the crops, water for the irrigation, water to drink, and even the transportation around the area. The Nile is really what made Egypt. If it wasn't for the great river of the Nile, Egypt would not have been as great as it was. But this pharaoh had gotten to the point that he thought he was so great that this river was his and that he is the one who even made it. Speaking of the monster, he says, I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. Now the hooks, and this is how they would catch a crocodile. They would generally embed a hook into a pig or something like that. And then as the alligator uh, ingested that, they would, they would hook him and they would uh, pull him out. So that's the uh, type of hunting that they were speaking of here. But when it talks about the fish sticking to their, uh, sticking to the scales, again, this is a parable. And so there's some interpretation that goes on here. It can be the Egyptian army itself. Or perhaps the nation that had thrown themselves in alliance, the nations, sorry, that thrown themselves in alliance with Egypt. I would be more inclined to say that it's probably the army. And we're going to see the destruction of the two together. Now, the Egyptian army, army had the, uh, a great deal of destruction when they went against the, the expedition against Cyrene. And the historian Herod tells us about that. This is what led to the revolt of Amasis. So he was, he was out there, but much was lost. Many of the, much of the army was lost, and Egypt was greatly weakened. The uh, weakening that had gone on here is really what set them up to lose in the future battles that they had, uh, that they had as well. Now in verse 6, Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all, you broke and made all their backs quiver. So again, Israel is trying to lead Judah, I'm sorry, is trying to lean on Egypt for help and support in this campaign that Babylon has against them. And he's saying you're, you're leaning on a reed that is broken and is going to hurt you. You're going to lean on it, and because of it, you're going to fall, and your shoulder will be uh, tore up. So because they have been a staff or a reed to the house of Israel, these are... Uh, this is the same phrase that's used in Second Kings chapter 18 and verse 20 when it talks about leaning on the reed. So those who rely on Egypt, they were not strengthened. Any nation that did, even, uh, even uh, Judah, but specifically we're focusing on Judah here. In verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste. And then they will know that I am the Lord because he said the river is mine and I have made it. So he says, I'm going to bring the sword upon you. This, of course, will be from the other nations and cut you off from man and beast. Now, this is not only just going against him. It will also go against his army. We're talking about swords. If you're going to go out to battle, the army is going to come with you. And the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste, and then they will know that I am the Lord, because he said, the river is mine, and I have made it. Now, Egypt was judged by the sword and desolation for two reasons. First off, pride, when he says the Nile is mine. The Pharaoh Hophra was known for his arrogance and inflated self-image. He felt that no one could defeat him, not even the gods of Egypt, could dislodge him from his position as king. The historian Herodotus, he said in, uh, in which he says that Hophra, or he calls him a prize, believed himself so firmly established in his kingdom that there was no God that could cast him out of it. This is a self-sufficient pride that was punished in Tyre 
and it will be in Egypt as well. So that's the first thing that we saw is the pride. The second one is for seducing Israel. Referred to this back in verse 7. Because Pharaoh Hophra promised to help them confront Nebuchadnezzar. But when the battle came, he abandoned them. He didn't help them out at all. This is what a person who, who tries to uh, seduce does. They are trying to lure someone in with affections that they have no intention of returning just to gain what they, they want to. So, therefore, uh, God promised to ruin the streams in verse 9 and make the land uninhabitable for 40 years. Now, this could be related to the 40 years of wandering of the Exodus. Maybe it's not anything. Maybe it's just the generation 40 years. There are two common flaws that open the way for these sins to come in. The first, this is your first blank, if you uh, have your outline in front of you. The first is delusion. Pride and arrogance come from delusion. They were so self-centered, so self, so self-centered had Egypt become in its power that it persuaded itself that both the nation and the river on which it was based was its own creations. This delusion of grandeur, spoken of in a form of national uh, omnipotence, was dangerous in, to the extreme. It could only be shattered by the truly omnipotent God whose words the prophet is declaring. So the first one is delusion. The second is selfishness. When Egypt offered friendship to its neighbor, it was only a tool to engineer its own benefit. They were selfish. False friendship offered for selfish reasons and hastily withdrawn at the least sign of cost is a one-sided union. Friendship involves self-sacrifice. The friendship that is willing to take but is not willing to give is not true friendship at all. I got this quote. I don't know who it was uh, ascribed to, but true friendship must eliminate the power of selfishness and replace it with the power of true selflessness. Jesus on true friendship says this in John chapter 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his, lay down one's life for his friends. That's selflessness. Egypt wouldn't do that. They wouldn't lay down their life for their friends. They would only lay down them lives, their lives for themselves. Now I put this in your outline. This is a, one of those ones you can highlight. The most dangerous lies are those that deceive the liar. Sometimes we tell lies and we know that they're lies, but the most dangerous lies are those that the liar actually believes are true. And that's what they had come to here in Egypt. It was a lie that they created denial, but he actually believed that he did. He actually believed that he was the author of all the greatness and that no god, not any of the gods of of Egypt, no god anywhere could ever take him out. He was more powerful than them. In Ezekiel 29, we saw some of that with the king of Tyre too. Verse 10, Indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from Megiddo to Cyrene as far as the border of Ethiopia. So he's coming against the rivers. You remember, of course, he did this during the plagues. He turned the river into blood because that was their God. Neither foot of man shall pass through nor foot of beast pass through it, and it shall be uninhabited forty years. And I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate and among the cities that are laid waste. Her cities shall be desolate forty years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Yet thus says the Lord God, at the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they are scattered. Now the words describe vividly a condition of Egypt under the Persian monarchy, after its conquest by Cambyses, with the Ptolemies, it rose again to something like, like eminence. But that, it must be remembered, was an alien dynasty. This was uh, basically Egypt suppressed, and the Greeks had taken it over. Alexandria became the principal city, which was a Greek city. <laughs> On all intents and purposes, it was a Greek city. Egypt built it, but they built it for Alexander. It took the place of prominence from Memphis, Sais, and Thebes. 
Now, the um, 40 years of desolation, the history around this time is kind of bleak. We're not able to uh, find too much is written, and there is no way to confirm that there was any kind of uh, desolation for 40 years. It seems that the Pharaoh who came next, there was success in his, uh, in his um, uh, dynasty, but uh, they were never the important uh, uh, power anymore. After this episodes here, they kind of go down in power and never become a great one. Again, under the Ptolemies, the king of the south is also known as that region. They come to a place of importance, but it's not Egypt. It is one of the generals under Alexander's army when they divided up his empire. Uh, let's see. So he says in here, this, this, this phrase, I wrote it out for you in your outline so you make sure you see this. No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel. In other words, what he's saying is there's no, there's no more let's go down to Egypt like Abraham said. There's no more let's go back to Egypt like Israel kept saying in the wilderness. Or let's depend on Egypt like Judah would say when they were facing Babylon and other enemies. There'll be no more of that. No more let's go down to Egypt. No more let's go back to Egypt. No more let's depend on Egypt. He says in verse 10 that from Megiddo to Cyrene, as far as the border of Ethiopia, that phrase is kind of like from Dan to Beersheba when we're talking about Israel, talking about all the, all the land. And when it mentions these, these particular cities, we're uh, going east-west instead of north-south. But this is, uh, this is describing the land that, that's there. He said, I will scatter the Egyptians in chapter 12. Now that scattering of the Egyptians seems to have happened under the Persian Empire when they came down and they defeated Egypt. It seems that they took some captives with them. Not a whole lot is, is mentioned in any of the recordings of history. But if the Word of God is talking about captives being taken and then returned, that is kind of the method of operation for Persia. They, of course, released the captives that Israel had and sent them back home. And it may be safe to assume that they had done this for other nations as well. So at the end of 40 years, the restoration would be, uh, would be taking place and these captives would be returned. In verse 14, he says, I will bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and they shall, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the lowliest of kingdoms. It shall never again exalt itself above the nations, for I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations anymore. This is actually an astounding prophecy because for thousands of years, Egypt has been a major power. They were a major power before Babylon. They were a major power before the Greeks. They were a major... You name the empire, they were a major power way back in the, in, in the beginning as, uh, as far as the nations that ruled. They were there. And even when they weren't ruling the entire world, they were still a major force. But after this, they never become that major force in the world. They never become that one that is the, the kingdom that is ruling. The kingdom that has that much influence. The kingdom that, you, that other people would even depend on. And Judah will notice this. When they come back in their land after the captivity, we never hear about them depending on, on Egypt. We never hear about them wanting to go down to Egypt. They may have traded with them. They may have done some things to, in business. But you never hear about them Wanting to go back to Egypt, you never hear about them. We need Egypt's help. They were pretty much cured of that. So at the end of this, we're going to take a look at how that happened. But here it calls it, it shall be the lowliest of kingdoms. The reign of, uh, of Amasis, who followed Hophra, uh, was one of general prosperity as far as uh, commerce and culture was concerned. But he was not a world power anymore. Uh, he, um, after the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the weakening that had gone on there in Egypt, they fell easily to the hands of the Persians under Cambyses. So, verse 16, No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel, but will remind them of their iniquity when they turned to follow them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is from the new... I'm sorry, that's not... Verse 16, So let me read it again. No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel. This is the King James, New King James, where we remind them 
of their iniquity when they turn to follow them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Let me read it to you in the New Century Version here. The Israelites will never again depend on Egypt. Instead, Egypt's punishment will remind the Israelites of their sin in turning to Egypt for help. Then they will know that I am the Lord, that I am the Lord God. So they would, from this point on, begin to think of Egypt and think of the things that have gone on and remember, they are not a place of help. They are not a place that will benefit us in any way. Verse 17. And it came to pass in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder rubbed raw, yet neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor which they expended on it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and remove her pillage, and that will be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, because they worked for me, says the Lord God. Now this was given on New Year's Day, April 26, 571, 572, again that year difference, about 16 years after the first prophecy. So the first prophecy is given, this one is given about 16 years later, and of course many other things had happened in uh, Ezekiel's ministry in between there. But he compiled all these, put them together. The um, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, campaigned against Tyre for 13 years and came away without a final victory. There was a, a tribute that was paid and a promise that was made from Tyre to, to pay tribute. But really all they got for the trouble, according to God here, was bald heads and shoulders rubbed bare. So uh, I guess a graphic description of the chafing of helmets and shoulders bearing the load of siege works. So in this message, God promised to give him a consolation prize of Egypt. If God, uh, if God made sure that Nebuchadnezzar got paid, who was a heathen king, he served God every once in a while and Sometimes he had a heart for God and other times he was out there building idols. But if he was going to make sure that he got paid, how much more is he going to make sure that the children of the kingdom are? Now, did God expect Tyre to fall to Babylon? When he sent him there, did he expect Tyre to be the reward for Babylon going after him? It would seem not because he, uh, in that prophecy they, they gave about Tyre's fall, Babylon doesn't seem to be attributed to it, but the nations that come up after that. So God sent him on a mission for him that he knew he wouldn't be paid for, but he had payment already already planned. Sometimes God may send us to do something and it doesn't quite seem to work out to our benefit the way we thought it should, the way we're expecting it should. But God's up there saying, hey, I needed you to do that. I needed you to go. I know it wasn't going to go that way, but that's all right. Here's what I have for you for all that time that you put in. Here's the, here's the benefit. That'll, that can come in as well. Don't lose sight of the fact that just because the mission that God sent you on wasn't successful, that what you were sent on wasn't of God. This is a great example of that. Now, little seems to be known of the event from historical sources. It occurs a few years later, at which time it's presumed that Pharaoh Amasis II came to terms with the invading army and paid a massive tribute. But there's not a whole lot of recording that had gone on about this battle. In verse 21... He says, in that day, I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, horn could possibly be a reference to Messiah. Psalm 132 in verse 17 <clears throat> uh, talks about Messiah as a horn. It could also be the Israel's future new life. Horn is used as a symbol of power. There's a couple of places where that shows up. 1 Samuel 2 in verse 1. Psalm 92, verse 10, and Psalm 112, verse 9. First Samuel 2, 1, Psalm 92, 10, and Psalm 112, 9. You'll see that horn is used as a symbol of power. Jeremiah uses this word horn in Lamentations, chapter 2. Let's read the, these three verses. 
How the Lord was covered, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath strongholds of the daughter of Judah and he has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back to his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Now he, Ezekiel may have had some of this in mind. He may have had this writing. Uh, he may be, be thinking about this when this word comes from him. But of course he speaks the words that God gave him, not the words that he heard Jeremiah speak. But every horn of Israel is mentioned in, in here. So this could also possibly speak about Nebuchadnezzar and how he would be working for Israel in going against the enemy, Egypt, and taking much of her power away. So just as he worked for God against Tyre, he worked for God against Egypt and took down one of Israel's enemies. In the New Century Version, it reads verse 21 this way, At that time, I will make Israel grow strong again, and I will let you, Ezekiel, speak to them. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. So apparently there may have been some things that Ezekiel could not speak to them that would make them stronger, but the day was coming when God says, we're going to put them back in that position. And Ezekiel, the words that you will have for them, whether it be teaching or prophecy, these are things that will make them stronger. Again, at that time, I will make Israel grow strong again, and I will let you, Ezekiel, speak to them. You see, the, the gifts that God puts into the body of Christ, these are things, when they speak, they make us as a church grow stronger. That's why we need them. That's why God sent them. Now, the prophecy ends with the phrase, Then shall they know that I am the Lord. This has been included in this chapter three times before, in verse 6, 9, and 16, and then again here. In verse 20, 21, that's four times in these three prophecies. Again, they're spread out over, over many years. But throughout the course of the book so far, we see this is, this is an overriding desire of Ezekiel. That they will know that I am the Lord. Now this is his desire because it's God's desire and Ezekiel has picked up the desires of God and it comes out in his life. Isn't it great when we can pick up the desires of God? Oh God, I know that you desire this for your people. God, I know that you desire this for whatever it might be and it, we just pick it up like our own desire. Ezekiel has done that with this. So, let's get back to this question. What destructive or harmful things seem to keep calling you back? Just as Egypt called back Judah called back Abram, called back Israel, called them back when they were wandering in the wilderness, called them when they were settled in their own land. What is your Egypt? Now, the thing that kept bringing Israel to, to go back to Egypt was they were believing that Egypt was better, that Egypt was beneficial and would take them to a better state. This is not something that we, can, that we can have. If we think that something that God does not want us to be part of is better, beneficial, but will take us to a better state, we're going to constantly be drawn to it. Since they went and learned this on their own, God took away the goodness and the strength of the nation of Egypt. When they didn't see the goodness and the strength of that nation, they weren't drawn to it anymore. But the path didn't just take a toll on Egypt as Israel and Judah lost just about everything that they had. So, a better way to go than to have the thing that is your Egypt just taken out. The better thing to do is to teach yourself that that Egypt is not better than where God is leading you. That's the first thing you've got to understand. Egypt is not better than where God is leading you. Whatever it is that's in your life that keeps pulling you back, the reason it pulls us back is, I think it's better. I think something about that is better than where I'm at now. You know, some of these things are, if we have kids and the kids are, are all being home right now, if they're uh, driving you a little crazy, we can think that no kids is better, but it's not. If we're married and we're getting a little frustrated with our spouse, we can think that single is better, but it's not. 
If we have a job and that job isn't going so well and things are, are being tough there, we can think another job is better. No job is better, but it's not. But if we keep thinking that another place, another condition, an Egypt in our life is better than where God is leading us, then I will be drawn to that Egypt. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. If I can teach myself that Egypt is not safer than in the hands of God. Israel kept seeing himself that Egypt was a safer place to be than depending on God. If we can depend on Egypt to help us deliver us from Babylon. If we can depend on Egypt to help us deliver us from this enemy. If we can do this, we'll be safer. But we have to understand that we're safer in the hands of God. The enemy of our faith, he wants us to believe in anything else being safer than we are in the hands of God. Because if he can do that, he gets us out of the place of faith. But we are not safer in Egypt than we are in the hands of God. Here's the third one. If you can teach yourself that Egypt is not more willing to act and protect you than God. Whatever your Egypt is, sometimes we think that, well, it is more willing than my God is. My God has all these rules and regulations. And if I don't do all these different things, and he may not come, come through for me. He may not help me. These kind of things fill our, our thoughts. How many prayers do we hear anymore? Well, if God doesn't. Well, if God, maybe it's not God's will. Maybe this can't, won't happen. And I begin to think that other things are more willing. Maybe the doctor is more willing to help me than my God is. Maybe the bank is more willing to help me than my God is. And we can list all these different things and put our confidence in them. That doesn't mean you can't go to the bank, can't go to doctors, nothing like that at all. But don't see them as more willing to help you than your God. Because that will keep drawing you back to Egypt. Here's the fourth one. If you can teach yourself that Egypt is not stronger than the hand of God. See, Israel didn't see this. They saw Egypt as stronger than the hand of God. When they were in Egypt, they saw Egypt as stronger than the hand of their God. And when their God began to show up to deliver them, they cried out because they were afraid. They didn't see that God was stronger than Egypt. When they got to the Red Sea, they cried out because they saw Pharaoh and Egypt coming. And even though they had God on their side, they saw Egypt as stronger than their God. When they were looking at Babylon, they saw Egypt as stronger than their God. When they were in the wilderness, they saw the conditions of Egypt as a safer place, stronger place, than they were in the wilderness in the hands of God. If you can teach yourself these four things, that Egypt is not better, that you are not safer there than in the hands of God, that Egypt is not more willing to act and protect you, and that Egypt is not stronger than the hand of your God. If you can teach yourself those four things, Egypt will lose its hold on you, just as it lost its hold on Judah. And when we are filled with thoughts of Egypt, Egypt will look good. When we fill our thoughts on the Word, God looks good. That's why the Word of God says, think on these things. We've got to think on things that keep us focused on God. But the enemy wants to slide some things in there to get our Egypt to look better, to get our Egypt to look more powerful, to get our Egypt to look more willing. Now, I wrote down some types of Egypts. This is not an exhaustive list. I just wanted to think of some things that we could maybe have in our life that were Egypts for us. So I'm going to throw out a few of them here. You can write down some of your own. You can write down some of these if they, they help you. Of course, the, the one that not just this time of time of the things we're facing, but how many times do we go back to this? Fear, anxiety, and worry. Why do we keep going back to that? It's like an Egypt for us. We keep going back to being afraid. We keep going back to being anxious. We keep going back to being worried. It keeps us up at night. It wakes us up in the morning. We get to fret about it all day long. Nothing's even happened yet, but we're fearing it. We're anxious about it. Oh, I might lose my job. Oh, I might not have this or whatever it might be, but the fear, anxiety, and worry, we keep constantly coming back to that. It's like an Egypt that just keeps pulling us in, and somehow we think that if I get in that state, 
If I get in that place of Egypt where there is fear, anxiety, and worry, somehow I am being made better. Somehow I am safer. Somehow this is a stronger position. That, that fear, anxiety, and worry are going to help me. How is fear and anxiety and worry going to help us? Yet we keep going back to it and turning to it. Here's another one. Failure. How easy it is in our minds that we keep going back, I'm just a failure. I know this is going to fail. Failure is an easy bar to reach. It's not too hard to do that. It's easy to fail at a thing. It's harder to succeed. But we keep going back to it. We don't want to be there. I like being out of failure, but I keep going back to it. I keep thinking of thoughts of failure. Keep thinking thoughts that this isn't going to work out. Keep thinking thoughts that, no, this isn't going to happen. Because failure is an easy bar to reach. Here's one like we've been talking about on Sundays. Assumptions. Assumptions are easier than asking or seeking understanding. It's easier than asking questions. It's easier than pursuing the truth. And for so many people, assumptions are in Egypt. Because when I'm faced with a situation where I don't know all the details, I assume. I connect my own dots. I make up facts. I accept facts that are not facts. And I just, I see things that really aren't there because of the assumptions. We were talking on Sunday how assumptions are the, the gateway to uh, deception. That if I make a deception, if I make an assumption, deception will come into my life. And as long as that deception is in my life, I will not see the truth. I am blocked from it. I have to get the assumption out in order for the deception to be removed. Boy, you can see that with a lot of people today. You go out to some of these protest rallies and you just hear the assumptions that are there and the deception that is on these people. Stirs them up to anger. Stirs them up to violence. Stirs them up to hurt people. They say that they're there to to help, to make things better, and they make things worse because assumptions have gotten in. Well, we've been talking enough about that on Sundays. Let's go on to the next one here. Sarcasm. Yeah, sarcasm can be an Egypt for some people because instead of going out there and building up people and edifying them, I get sarcastic. I get skeptical. I think that everything that somebody's doing is, uh, is not for good. The Word of God says, don't be skeptical. It says, think the best of people. But we have that Egypt going on in our life. And every time that something goes on, I fall back into it because I feel safer in a place where I am skeptical than a place where I am optimistic. I feel safer being suspicious of people than I am about thinking the best of people. You see, this is a different place. God says, I want you over here in Palestine. I say, I want to go over here to Egypt. I want to be in the area of sarcasm. I want to be in the area of skepticism. I want to be in the area of distrust. I don't want to be in that place that God says, but God says, no, come over here to this place. Come over here to this land. Be in this place where you believe the best in other people. Be in that place where you speak words of edification to other people. Be in that place that even though what you are seeing visually is telling you bad things about going on, go in there with the word of God. Go in there and encourage. Go in there and uplift. These are the things you do. But Egypt calls us back. We go back into sarcasm. There's another one, gossip. See, gossip will bring me into popularity. People like it when I bring gossip. People like it when I bring bad news about other people or dirt on other people. And they, they'll, do you have any dirt today? Do you have anything going on today? What do you have to tell me? And so once we get into that, we keep going back there. We may hear messages from the, the Word of God. We may be reading the Word of God and we may see, oh, the Word of God says, don't be a busybody in other people's business. Don't go around gossiping. Don't do these things. But I get put in that place and I know I'm not supposed to be there. I'm not supposed to go down to that Egypt. But as soon as I get in that situation, I've got some dirt on some people in there and I sit down with them and say, oh, what do you got? Or they begin to say something. Oh, my dirt's better than that dirt. And I get stirred up in the area of gossip. I go back to Egypt. I know I'm not supposed to be there. I know I'm not supposed to go in that direction. But I feel safer in that area, in that land, than I do in God's land. I feel like it's a better place. I feel like it's going to help me more than God does. God hasn't helped me get enough friends. But if I gossip, if I backbite, if I tell these dirty dirty bits about people, then people begin to like me. And they do for over time until they, all that stuff comes out. Here's the last one I'm going to get into. Again, you can keep on adding other things to this. Find out where your, your Egypt is. But doubt. We know that where God has called us is a place of faith. 
And yet how easy do we go back to Egypt and go back to doubt? We saw that in the story with the storm when the disciples were facing the storm. The storm came up and they were in faith. They were ready to go to the other side and the storm came and it changed their mind. And they came and woke up Jesus. Master, don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus gets up and he speaks to the wind and then he says to the or he rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. And then he turns to them and says, where's your faith? Why did you doubt? Why did you leave the land of faith to go into the land of doubt? Why did you leave Palestine to go back to Egypt? Because they felt safer. Can you imagine this? We feel safer in the area of doubt than we do in the area of faith. I feel more comfortable in the area of doubt than I do the area of Faith. I feel like doubt is going to come through for me more than faith is. Why else are we going there? They did everything they, they could do in the natural to get those that get that water out of the boat. But then they had to come down to the master and they revealed their thinking. Don't you care that we are perishing? We get pulled in these areas. There are so many Egypts that are out there for us. I may not have named one for you. Maybe you can come up with with one, but you should know what is in Egypt, what is it that's trying to pull you in? Somewhere there's a land of Egypt, somewhere there's a place out there that is not where God calls you to be. It's not a, a, a type of thinking that you're supposed to have. It's not a type of acting that you're supposed to have. But when you face the storm, when you face opposition, when the enemy comes against you, you go back into that land Wherever it may be, you go back into that Egypt. Where is that Egypt for you? As you think about this, think about it with with this list in mind. Can you teach yourself that that Egypt is not better than where God is leading you? Can you teach yourself that that place of doubt is not better than the place of faith that God is leading you? Can you teach yourself that you are not safer in that Egypt than you are in the hands of God? You are not safer in that place of sarcasm and skepticism than you are in the hands of God. The enemy wants you to think if you are skeptical about everybody, nobody can hurt you. But God is saying if you go that way, you're not safer. You're not in a better place. Can you see that that Egypt is not more willing to act and protect you than your God. Can you teach yourself that? And can you teach yourself that that Egypt is not stronger than the hand of God in your life? You see, if you can teach yourself these things, that Egypt will no longer have power over you. That Egypt will no longer be a draw to you. You will lose your desire for it. Put it in the natural, think of it this way. Was there a food in your past that you knew didn't help your body? Now we always pick on Twinkies or cupcakes or whatever it might be. There's a food you had a weakness for. Oh, you loved that food, but you knew it was not doing good for your body. And after a while, you, you finally determine, I am not going to eat McDonald's hamburgers anymore. I'm not going to eat Twinkies anymore. I'm not going to eat Cheetos anymore. Whatever it might be that you came up with, I'm not going to eat them anymore. And oh, for a while you missed it because oh, you just have a craving for that particular thing. But you stayed away from it because God told you this is not good for you. And you stayed out. And after you stayed out for a while, long, long time, you picked up a McDonald's hamburger. You picked up a Twinkie and you took a bite out of it. And that thing that you loved that always used to draw you in so much, all of a sudden now, I used to like these. Oh, this is disgusting. Oh, this is gross. I don't like it anymore because it's lost the appeal. See, I trained myself on something. I found out that this is not better than where God is leading me. And where God led me was a much better place. And Egypt no longer had a hold on you. We hear a lot about we want to go back to Egypt. Israel wanting to go back to Egypt. Abraham wanting to go down to Egypt. Israel and Judah wanting to depend on Egypt. But after Egypt falls in this prophecy, the word of the Lord came and says, you guys will never have confidence in them again. 
And we never hear, in all the times of the New Testament, we never hear that Judah makes those words. Let's go down to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's depend on Egypt. We don't really hear Egypt mentioned at all. Because what God said in this prophecy came about. You will never again have confidence in them. And God has a way for you to no longer have confidence in whatever your land of Egypt is. And it will no longer keep drawing you away from the promised land that God has called you to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us to a place of victory. I thank you that you have called us to a place where we are the winners. You've called us to a good land, a land of Palestine, a land of milk and honey. It's a good land. But when Israel first got there, they saw giants, they saw walled cities, they saw chariots. And it was hard for them to see the good of the land. Father, when you call us into a good place, it is a better place than where we were. And we have to train ourselves that the things that you're telling us, the things that you're leading us to, is better than the places where we came from and the things that we used to depend on. I thank you for it and give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I don't know if I can call up the, the feed for it here and see if there's any, any uh, comments or, or questions from, from any of you. See if I can uh, turn the volume down. Maybe I can read any of, the, any of the comments I have. If you have any questions, if you post them up there, I should be able to see them. Usually on Wednesday nights we ask for folks who have any comments or questions or anything to add. Because sometimes you all have some great points to add on the, as you are as you're listening. All right, don't see uh, too much so far. So if uh, I guess we will we will call that tonight. Well, it looks like we're going to be doing the Wednesday night service from uh, Facebook only feed for the next couple of weeks anyway. I'm not saying that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings, but for the uh, Sunday mornings, we'll probably still be having a small crew in here and, and uh, doing, uh, there's a lot more that goes on on Sundays, and um, I sure can't do all that. I can do one part of it, but we need all the other people and the things that they, they bring, or at least some of the other people to come on in and bring worship and other parts like that. So we'll uh, keep you up to date on, on what's going on there. But thanks all for coming out on the Facebook feed. Appreciate the comments and things that you left. Let me know that you were there. And uh, you all have a great rest of the day. I see a couple of the last comments on and the, the ending. Appreciate those uh, there, guys. All right. Have a good rest of your night, and we will see you all soon.